0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster,
1: but what we can do is control our response.
2: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
3: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding.
2: And I am Xenia Chmutina.
3: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
2: Thank you for tuning in. Hello everyone and we're back again. It's Monday, Jason and I are here and we've got something exciting prepared for you as always. So today we're going to talk about the manifesto. I think many of you remember Prestige, Power and Forgotten Values manifesto that we've published about a year ago now, and we talked about it in our season two. We also reflected on it quite a lot in season one. And so we're now back again with JC Geilard. Hey, JC.
4: Hello. Good to be back. How are you?
2: We're good. And, you know, we're, we're so excited to talk to you about the manifesto today. I think last time I checked we had about 350 signatures. So it's
5: great.
4: Yeah, I mean it's been uh it's been a journey since uh since then and I think uh being just uh, the number of signatures there's been uh some sort of traction overall. I mean and you can see the manifesto being cited in publications. You can see uh we're talking about um, events or, or informally in emails. And um, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's had some sort of impact, which is, which is good.
2: Uh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic that we've got so many people involved. And by the way, you know, I've just started chatting with JC and completely forgot to say hello to Jason. Hey, Jason.
3: Hi, I'm here as well. <laughs> um, no, it's great. It's great to I'm have so you back sorry. on the show, JC. And um, I guess it's been like a year since, um, since IREC. And we, we kind of used the manifesto and tried to frame some of what we were doing at IREC last year around the manifesto. Um, but it's going to be really, really exciting to, over the course of the next um, two episodes, to talk about, reflect on some of the conversations and the thinking that people and reflection that people have done. Since um, the manifesto was put together,
4: yeah, no, thanks, thanks for um, for having me. I mean, uh, if if the manifesto has gotten some, some traction, uh, I think it's it's partly due to the podcast as well. I mean, when when we spoke uh, last year, I mean, you were just an emerging uh, initiative, and now you are rock stars. I mean, <laughs> everyone talks about you, so I think it's 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 largely, I mean. You're a very big part of the of 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 the momentum. So uh, thanks thanks a lot to you too.
2: Thank you, JC. It's yeah, pretty amazing. And I think last time we discussed manifesto with you, JC, and also with Loik and uh, Jake. It was actually in your office, right in Auckland. Goes like <laughs> century ago so before we move on to the uh, to listen to our audience right and kind of discussing some of the questions we wanted to reflect upon uh, JC, can you just tell us a little bit uh, remind our audience how come you decided to introduce the manifesto and sort of brought us all with you what was the motivation for it just you know just remind us, what was Manifesto
4: about? Okay, so first and foremost, um, it's not my manifesto. <laughs> and I think there's been some sort of uh, labeling there. And I need to remember when we drafted the manifesto, we had a long discussion around authorship and whether we should go for alphabetical order, mm. etc. It happened that mm. in the end, at least on the on the petition website, uh, my name come fir- comes first. But... I mean, it it, it was really a, a collective effort and it's not my manifesto. It's our manifesto, I think. And, and, uh, it, it really was a collective effort, yeah. um, Indeed. and yeah, I mean, you, you were part of the, of the many hands, uh, who, who drafted the thing. So, um, yeah, so I think it, it, it started a few months before when following the publication of this, uh, short. Commentary in disasters called Disaster Studies Inside Out. We had some online discussions around the tone of the of the commentary and whether the, the point made around I'm, I'm using speech marks decolonizing uh, disaster mm-hmm. studies and how to uh, how to move forward. And one thing that we discussed in, in the background and, and following a few events that we held in Europe as well, where we had uh, discussions around this idea of decolonizing speech marks, uh, disaster studies. Then we we, we, we thought that we, we needed to come together and have a more um, a, a sort of trying to reach out to a broader audience and to get some sort of larger backing to the initiative and uh, coming up with this short, uh, punchy series of bullet points that the manifesto is. Was one of these um, of these initiatives, and, and and there will be others, and there are others in the pipeline now with uh, a couple of special issues of DPM and, and a few other things. But the manifesto was only really the the uh, the springboard to um, gather this broader momentum behind those ideas.
2: Yeah, th- thanks for that, and I hope uh, the audience. I think the audience reflected on it quite a lot, right? And we will talk about it in a minute.
3: Yeah. So. So what we've done just to bring the focus back to the manifesto. I know if, if anybody is wondering where to find out more, um, that we have an episode on the manifesto in the season one, episode 18, I think it's 18, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and so I would encourage anybody who's listening to go back, listen to episode 18, um, follow the show notes there to, um, the manifesto itself. If you want to have a look. Um, so you can get a bit more context about what we're discussing today and next week. And what we've done is we've asked um, a series of questions to our listeners and to some of the individuals who have been part of the manifesto or signed the manifesto or have some, um, some reflection to share with you. And so we asked people to respond to three different questions. And in this episode we are going to play the responses to the first two of those questions and have a little discussion about that. And then next week, we will play the responses to the third question and have a a longer discussion about the major themes that emerged from the manifesto uh, reflection exercise that we undertook. So without further ado, let's listen in to some of the responses to the first question that we asked to Um, some of the signatories of the manifesto and some others who uh, wanted to to share their thoughts on the manifesto. The question was, is the current terminology we use appropriate for working in a non-anglophone context? But...
6: And it's implied strongly in the manifesto. Researchers operate in this kind of ecosystem of funding, peer approval, career and so on, which fashions them towards a very kind of narrow, focused approach, a very kind of private, reified language, and in all sorts of ways, uh, sets them apart from the worlds that they claim they want to research with, if not on. So that's the problem of the kind of whole research community.
1: For me, much of the terminology in disaster risk reduction could be tightened and simplified for everyone, not just for working across languages and cultures, but also for our own work for ourselves. Even the phrase disaster risk reduction is complicated. More straightforward might be calling it preventing and dealing with disasters, Or disaster-related activities. Not that these are ideal, but all languages and words have challenges. Another example is that the climate change and disaster fields have different definitions for the word mitigation. This creates confusion, especially given that the fields should be joined, not separate, with climate change being a clear subset of disaster-related activities. Similarly, many choose to separate vulnerability, and exposure as concepts, which could work if we agreed on precise and clearly delineated descriptions, but we are far from this. So why create complications by using two different, equally confusing terms? Meanwhile, vulnerability and resilience have so many definitions and do not translate into so many languages and cultures that it can be difficult to use them. We can do better for ourselves on terminology which would assist everyone in collaborating across languages and cultures.
0: So, in my view, our understanding of disasters has become rather too mechanical, uh, defined by constructs uh, that have been created by the so-called researchers and experts uh, from a certain region of the world who have great command in English uh, and similar powerful languages I do have the ability to carve out a distinct vocabulary. Uh, Ironically, uh, that is more often self-serving rather than serving the fundamental goal of improving the well-being of people. I can rather say that in many cultures, disasters are so much intertwined with day-to-day lives of the people that extracting them out of this reality for the sake of making so-called scientific analysis will rather do no service to addressing them but will merely serve the agendas of the researchers. Moreover, they are understood in local languages using indicators and vocabulary that may not have any parallel in the languages of mainstream discourse. These local manifestations are crucial to be understood and respected or else we will continue to control and steer research agenda with a colonial mindset without producing the desired betterment of human dignity and well-being.
7: In Spanish, uh, concepts like resilience are taken from English. There is a lot of misunderstandings by the final users and readers. We need to do better in our explorations of other language diversity and richness in the DRR terminology.
8: English terms dominate research and practice in the disaster management field is part of a larger challenge. Um, and that challenges that language, ideas, and constructs that dominate the field come from above. And what I mean is that leading agencies, policymakers, think tanks, and funding organisations um, express themselves in these terms. Um, these terms, this this terminology um, is at the heart of global policies, guidelines, standards and what that means is that if researchers or practitioners want to connect with them they have to speak their language, they have to use their terminology to gain legitimacy in their eyes uh, and as a result funding. If you go to a disaster area where most people don't speak English um, local humanitarians and researchers will use English terms for disaster management jargon Um, I mean when I did fieldwork in Ethiopia and Nepal, local humanitarians and researchers would speak to each other in the local language but use English words for constructs like resilience uh, and participation. So my take on that is that researchers and professionals to the global level are compelled to express themselves in this terminology in order to count in order to be seen as legitimate uh, and in order to be able to contribute to the debate. English is often used um, is only part of a wider challenge uh, and the challenge is that top down ideas and constructs are imposed on the local context and that that local reality has to be fitted to those external ideas and constructs whether they are expressed in English.
9: Or in translation, a sort of Sanskritized elite register of Nepali word could be almost worse than using an English word. And so, yes, often, like you just said too, I'll speak in Nepali and then kind of code switch into English to use a word like resilience or vulnerability, which often uh, people uh, in communities all across Nepal will have learned through various kinds of NGO um engagements or um will work to, to try to understand what kinds of language they're using uh to describe those kinds of experiences and that takes some time
6: what we decided was to, you know, we will simply go to the communities and try to identify uh, different words, terminologies, symbols, you know, expressions uh, that they might use to define uh, these terminologies. Uh, I think that that was quite helpful in the sense that, you know, from one community to another uh, community, you always find uh, differentiations, uh, differences in terms of how they understand and how they internalize, and what kind of a terminal, local terminologies uh, that uh, they use. So it's always helpful to be open. The concept that we use in disaster research, uh, like you said, the resilience, and vulnerability, it's often very difficult to translate into uh, Nepali lang- language, the national official language. But it's even more difficult to translate into local languages um, in the context of Nepal, where there are many different linguistic groups. So sometimes, if you translate that into the um, you know national uh, language, that becomes another sort of uh, adding another sort of complexity. And, and uh, it's the same power structure uh, whether you use that term in English or in the uh, in Nepali context using the Sanskritized words. So it's difficult. Therefore, we need to look at the equivalent uh, words that are equivalent in the concept that we want to use in disaster missions.
10: I consider that current concepts are appropriate to work in a non-Anglophone context, in the sense that they provide sufficient elements to recognize that risk is a social construction, that disasters are not natural, and on the contrary, They are the result of an inappropriate development model. This terminology problem seems to be clearer in Latin America, where the national disaster risk management laws of countries such as Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia and Argentina, among others, Effectively invite no use of the term natural disaster. Reflection around the term natural disaster help us to understand that the current concepts are appropriate, but the terms are not. Adapting the anglophone terms to the non-anglophone context is completely necessary, otherwise their practical application becomes limited. Such adaptation does not consist of a simple translation but a consultation between the stakeholders.
7: A few years after we started the initiative, we started to realize that people on the ground, people we were working with, were not really using the language that we had initially proposed for this project. For example, people on the ground never talked about resilience, the people in informal settlements very rarely talked about adaptive capacities or adaptation to climate change. When ordinary citizens used the Spanish equivalent of these terms, this resilience-related jargon, it was only in very strained responses to researchers' questions or comments. We suspected that something was wrong. Uh, For instance, when one of the respondents wanted to describe a person in their neighborhood, they would say, for example, Mariana, the name of the woman, has the right attitude to overcome any challenge. Initially, we thought, well, this is perhaps the equivalent of resilience. But later on, we realized that what people were telling us was was not that much that this woman had a certain adaptive capacity. What they were telling us is that this woman had a certain attitude. We immediately noticed that we were distorting the messages by applying the language and the frameworks that made sense in English, but probably didn't make any sense in Spanish and in the informal settlements where we were working. We realized that maybe we were enacting kind of a new form of intellectual colonialism something that we have criticized in the past so we decided to change the attitude and start we started to listen to the words people were telling us
2: Well, so I guess as we've heard from all these clips, most of our audience find the terminology really quite problematic, and it's not that it's not just because we can't always translate the terms, but also it's because the meaning isn't always um, coming from the cultural context, right? And so we are completely losing what it is we're trying to say and imposing our own values uh, when we use the established terminology. What do you think, JC?
4: Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, um, we, we've talked a lot about concepts and, and how they apply to particular um, issues with regards to disasters, but there's a broader picture, I think, which is important. And um, it's it's about what the, the, the language vehicles uh, in in more broader terms. Um, and I, I'm thinking here of... of uh, Franz Fanon's argument around um, when when you when you when you take on a language, you embrace an entire culture, and mm. um, we're gonna talk about epistemologies and, and and ways of knowing afterwards. But this is, I mean, there's there's more than 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 just the concept. It's 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 the whole thing, and in the academic world, it's about. Um, what publishing in English entails when it comes to formatting or structuring a paper um, which is very normative usually and it depends or, I mean according to disciplines but there's usually a format you have to follow which is the format of uh, anglo american standards so there's there's a, there's, a, there's a broader picture beyond just the concepts that we use
3: I was just thinking of um, the the work that we've been doing Ksenia, as well um, on translation because some mm. of the um clips are
4: are really connected to that work yeah i mean yeah there's there's a lot to say about it because it's 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 definitely not i mean the the, the concepts are the tip of the iceberg mm. and um yeah when, when we when we take these concepts on we we take on the whole eurocentric approach to understanding the world and to sharing knowledge and to i mean it, it extends to how we uh about disasters at school at the university and um i gonna talk about methodologies and epistemologies afterwards but there's there's um you, you try to you try through the language you try to um uh, to convince uh your audience and to yeah to, to 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 vehicle a broader culture and i'm remembering as well a paper by Spivak called uh, the um, the burden of english where she mm. she she, she, she discusses how to to take on to embrace um, an idea. Uh, you need to be convinced in the first place that, that this is um, this is good for you. This is meant for you. So there's a whole thing behind just the concepts.
2: Yeah, and I think you know with with the concepts and the terminology that we've been using. And so I think one of the things that Gonzalo reflected upon in his audio clip. Was uh, intellectual col- colonialism. So for me, and I think about this quite a lot, you know, and we reflect on it uh, in the paper that Jason has just mentioned is that kind of relationship um, in terms of power when somebody belongs to the club of the people who use particular terms, right? So if I say, if I know what I mean by resilience, or if I use vulnerability in a certain context, and you understand what I mean. That, that gives us extra knowledge, right? That gives us kind of extra power. Um, and very often what we also see is that people start using those concepts just so they start belonging to the club, right? And I'm using this in quotation
3: marks.
4: Yeah, I mean, I fully agree. I know Gonzalo just published a paper on this um, last week, or this week, and I'm, I'm with him on it. I mean, it's... Uh... It's like uh, you're you know, you're out because if you if you don't use all these concepts, there's no way you're gonna get published because I mean that the the editors the editors uh, may the editors and the publishers may think that there's no way you're gonna be cited because you're not part of the of the bandwagon. And okay. uh, if ever you pass the, the initial screening, then uh, you will have to deal with reviewers who may not be familiar with whatever term you may use that may come from your own culture. And that may not be uh, understandable or understood by the, the reviewers. So it's either you're in or you're out. I'm, I, I agree, unless, and this is what we want to do with DPM in the future, unless this is the whole ethos of the journal um, yeah. To to go beyond that uh, club,
5: yeah, and I, I, it's
2: such a difficult thing to do, though, isn't it? How do we step away from terminology when uh, if we just love it so much in academia? How do we encourage everybody else to step away from it? I mean, million dollar question, I guess.
4: That that's that's one of the things we've been discussing uh, since last year. I think since we um, published a manifesto. It depends who you are as well. I think if you're um, a tenured, uh, later career researcher, uh, it's easier to not publish uh, something because you don't want to embrace the um, the ethos of the the book or the, the special issue of the journal. But if you're Mm -hmm. an early career researcher and um, if your career depends, I mean, if your tenure or if your uh, future job depends on publishing something which is going to be cited, hence that requires to cite or to use a particular concept, then that's a bit more difficult. And um, I mean, we can't endanger the careers of of young researchers, especially those from um, non-Western countries who 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 struggle as well and who have to use this concept. So it's a very, very tricky situation, as you said. Mm.
2: And I think this brings us nicely to our second question. So we once we heard the clips about uh, terminology, we also asked our audience to reflect on the methodologies that we as researchers use. So what we wanted to hear about is whether the methodologies that we use serve our research purposes whether they serve the research purposes of those who do not research in or from the western context i guess i should say but also most importantly whether the methodologies that we use actually serve those who are researched and i'm using researched in quotation marks so let's listen what our audience has to say about this
7: I think, generally, the methodologies have their legitimate intentions to serve the needs of their research populations. To me, the problem is how research goes so fast. We're always running for the next project, the next paper, the next grant. Those dynamics are not helping us to make deeper engagement with the
5: communities. The current research methodologies serve the needs of researchers coming from the global north. That does not mean that these research methodologies serve the needs of researchers coming from the global south or from those spaces where the research is being conducted. I think that the way we conduct research at the present time is insufficient in terms of the timing that we give to our research and the nuanced approaches um, that are required. I don't think that we're using the tools that we have available to make a difference. I don't think we necessarily want to hear how best to do research because it might not serve the forms of engagement that we currently use. There's a disconnect in terms of, um, of time, of language and the mediums that we use to share our insights. I think policymakers and practitioners want information now, they want it in smaller sized bites of communication than we are willing to give, and people might not necessarily want the level of nuance that researchers
8: are comfortable providing. for certain research questions those are indeed the right methods to use however the problem is that researchers who want to do more explorative research or researchers who want to focus on for example sense making or meaning making because they need funding they're sometimes pressured into using methods that are suboptimal for the issue they initially try to understand and so they have to shift. Like for example, I know of this NGO in Nepal that was doing really valuable qualitative research at village level after the 2015 earthquakes, they were researching the experiences and perceptions of local people in remote areas. When it came to the reconstruction efforts, they used community meetings and worked with a network of local journalists based all over Nepal. Now, a major donor learned about their work and thought that it would be improved if they conducted structured survey research instead. So they funded their research on the condition that they would undertake survey research. So as a result, they actually change their approach and they try to get to people's perceptions and understandings by using a pre-structured questionnaire instead of three open discussions they used before. So in my experience donors tend to sometimes push for certain forms of research like the quantitative survey research because they think it's more robust but obviously for certain settings and certain topics it's just not appropriate. So Research have sometimes pushed to use certain methods and focus on certain topics because they need money. And in that sense the methods serve their needs. but when it comes to their needs to focus on the topic that they think is most important and use the methods that are most appropriate for it for that, and the opposite is sometimes true.
11: Research methodologies are already defined by the researchers. If' going down to the field since the research proposal has to be prepared, submitted to, and approved by the institutional partners in order to secure funding support.
6: If we adopt with the ethnographic and other methods, uh, some more active uh, participatory approach uh, to involve the community, local community, um, you know, leaders and then local intellectuals, and researchers like teachers and other people um, to involve in the you know, information collection and also analyze it together because in the conventional situation we collect information and we analyze ourselves. There's no involvement of the local community.
9: I think in a way, it's um, giving ourselves as researchers too much credit and too much importance to begin with the notion that somehow what we're doing will inherently be of value uh, to community members that we're working with. Um, in my past experience, sometimes that does turn out to be the case, um, but not always. And, and when it does, then it's, it's in a way a sort of added bonus or, um, you know, in a sense, a really special moment when you can see that and where you see all Uh, everybody who's engaged in a research process is really seeing how that has played out. But that takes a long time and it's not usually evident um, at the starting point where often, no matter how much we say, well, we'd like to do participatory action research or develop community, um, we'll develop our research questions in a um, community-based manner, still at the kind of you know funding level when we write a proposal, we're still defining the scope Um, of inquiry uh, in a certain way, which hopefully is based on previous um, experiences with the community and is not too far off base, but still is going to be written in in kind of the terms of um, Euro-American academic institutions when you're applying for funding from those sources.
11: It can be difficult to locate these meanings in Western epistemologies. This is not to say that Western epistemologies are not important in informing disaster research. My awareness of how Western epistemologies can potentially reinforce an equal power of defining, labeling, and essentializing indigenous peoples made me more conscious of how my research can perpetrate disaster injustices amongst indigenous peoples. It taught me that indigenous peoples themselves need to take action together so that disaster research responds to its accountability for emancipation and solidarity with indigenous peoples in their struggles. However, the imposition of Western research paradigm to indigenous peoples, either unconsciously or by choice, need to be carefully reflected upon. Western epistemologies and disaster research as experienced particularly by my own indigenous community have led to erroneous ethnographies that have further alienated indigenous peoples and rendered them more vulnerable to hazards and disasters.
0: There are many aspects of traditional knowledge and management practices that may be best understood by their bearers rather than outside researchers uh, external experts may be able to articulate traditional knowledge and produce great publications and then get famous but if that knowledge has to help the communities who have evolved it through their trial and error over time they must be involved not only in rediscovering the knowledge they hold, but also further take the lead role in evolving and innovating this knowledge to address current challenges. I feel this act of facilitation is what we, external researchers and professionals who work in this domain of disaster risk reduction, can play and should play, leaving the final decisions in the hands of the targets of our research. I will include myself as one of those researchers, you know, who use specialized tools and skill sets to analyze physical, social, economic, institutional vulnerabilities and capacities. Uh, But in my view, the most important element uh, in this understanding of uh, vulnerability and capacity is attitudinal because attitudes and perceptions determine the way disasters are experienced and addressed by people which in turn are conditioned by their cultural backgrounds. As external researchers and professionals who are trained in Western education, we may construct disaster discourse using our own understanding, for example, of a tangible space with fixed boundaries and a linear time scale. But in many cultural traditions, these may have entirely different connotations. For example, rather than dividing disaster risk management into three phases of mitigation, response and recovery, uh, before, during and after um, disasters, many cultures actually may perceive disaster in a continuum without linear segregation between past, present and future or before, during and after. Similarly uh, in oral cultures, uh, many many traditional cultures are in fact oral, Uh, they don't have written records. And in these cultures, space is experienced through stories that make up the mental construct for understanding a landscape rather than understanding it as a confined space defined by its geographical features, you know, as we are many times trained in Western education to understand any landscape.
3: So I'm just wondering what what um, what did you think about these responses, JC?
4: Um no, I I think they reflect um many of the um of the issues we uh we deal with and to build upon your point about um ontologies and going beyond Anglo-American or Eurocentric um Eurocentric rather ontologies, we face the issue we discussed uh, before about the concepts is how do we convey, how do we justify, how do we talk about these ontologies? And um, language is again another um, big issue here. Mm. And it takes us back to to what disaster is in the first place and whether there's such a thing as a disaster as we uh, frame it and, and pitch it in... In, in Eurocentric or, or Western uh, academic tradition.
3: And I, I think that's really a, the central theme of our podcast overall, you know, is about what is a disaster really. And we're probably every week, we're trying to bring the conversation back around to talk about the processes at play when we, that we need to acknowledge when we're talking about disasters rather than framing them as some event.
4: Rohit makes a good point when he says often that uh, when what we call uh, and we, from a Western perspective, call hazards, when these things are embedded within people's everyday life and they are Mm. not, uh, or you can't really um, identify some tangible forms of harm, is it still what we call a hazard? And, yeah. and Greg Bankov talked about this quite a lot as well, um, in his book on the Philippines. So mm. I, 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 I remember looking recently at some, um, uh, pioneering dictionaries in my province in the Philippines, um, dating back to the, um, to the 18th century and everything, I mean, or all the words that you could find associated with harm to people, or something that you could identify as a hazard, are, are crocodiles. And floods, and and rain, and the volcanoes are not there as hazards. The only thing is the crocodile. And mm-hmm. crocodiles are gone now, but then they were a big thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, this is kind of going back to culture, right? So what we said when we we're talking about the first question, but you know, one of the things that stood out for me in the in the clips is the reflection on the impact of funding on the methodologies that we choose. Basically, many quite a few people said, right, that we are not going to get funding if in our proposals we do not use the methodologies that we are kind of expected to use, right? And what's another problematic thing? And of course, you see, you know, we we spoke to about this so many times before is in the way that the funding then allows us to do research. So we kind of rush into the field, do research as quickly as we possibly can, right? And then rush away. And then we need to write yet another proposal so we don't have time at all uh, to actually engage in a meaningful way with the community to try and understand how research should be done from their perspective and what's in it for them.
4: But here you're assuming that uh research is to be conduct- conducted by people who are not familiar with the place.
2: Right, right. Yeah, of course.
4: Which is which is a question we should ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who who
3: is doing the research and um who who is it really for? I think a yeah. common theme was that um the methodologies we are using and even the the research that's being done generally is um very extractive, right?
4: Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's, that's a bottom line issue. Who studies what for whom and where? Mm. And again, I think this, this, there, there was a lot of discussion, uh, after, before and after the publication of the manifesto around this, the sort of, uh, divide between insiders, outsiders, inside, outside, who's, um, who's in, who's out. Mm. It, it, it obviously goes beyond nationalities, beyond passports, beyond, um, native languages, it's about being embedded and, and, and embodying somehow, uh, the local culture. And and if, if we assume that we need to stay, uh, um, long enough within what we call a project, which is something which is very, very, uh, Western, the idea of a project, then maybe we're, we're skewing the whole thing right from the start.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We talked about terminology. We talked about methodologies. We came back to power over and over again, right? We And I think um, it's pretty clear that we really need to think about what it is we're trying to do, who is trying to do this, and for whom. So this has been great. And we have so much more to discuss um, in the second part. So thank you, JC, for starting this conversation. And we shall see you again next week.
4: Yeah, no, thank you so much again for having me. And I'm looking forward to uh, more discussions next week.
3: Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
2: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at disastersdecon.
3: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
2: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
3: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.